Peace to you. Welcome to The Naked Truth, and thank you for joining me. We're going to pick up where we left off in the book of 2 Samuel. We made it to chapter 15. If you want to read along with me, let's begin. Verse 1. After this, it happened that Absalom provided himself with chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. So the after is after uh, Absalom was allowed to return. He was exiled from his homeland, self-exile. No one forced him to leave, but he left after he murdered his brother because his brother had raped his sister. Um, so he got revenge by waiting till the time was right and calling for his brother's execution and bringing it about. Um, then he fled because both of them are sons of the king, King David. So rather than face any consequences, he took off and uh, went to Syria. Um, but now he's been allowed to return. David gave him basically a pardon or amnesty, however you want to think of it, and allowed him to return. Um, but as long as he kept his distance from King David. Um, but that's how it was at first. But then by the end of the last chapter, after a couple of years, after some time, he was allowed to be in the king's presence again. Um, the king isn't much of a dad the way it reads because look how his kids have turned out. One uh, son raped one of his daughters, both his kids, and another son killed uh, one of his other sons. And he is grieving for the son that ran off in self-exile instead of grieving for the son who was murdered, even though that son was a rapist. Uh, so it's a messy family dynamic going on in the king's household. Um, and it just gets worse in this chapter. So let's keep reading. Verse 2. Now Absalom would rise early and stand beside the way to the gate. So it was whenever anyone who had a lawsuit came to the king for a decision, that Absalom would call to him and say, what city are you from? And he would say, your servant is from such and such a tribe of Israel. So Absalom is uh, David's son who, you know, killed his brother. Now he's back and he's politicking. He's winning over the favor of the people of the land by appealing to them in their legal pursuits. So they're trying to sue people and he's taking, he's meeting them as they basically go to court and um, finding out what it is they have grievance with. The same way politicians do when they shake hands and kiss babies back in the, back in the day uh, to try and win over the favor of people. That's what he's up to. Verse three, then Absalom would say to him, look, your case is good and right. There's no deputy or the king to hear you. So He's winning them over, letting them know, um, yeah, your case is good. You have a good cause. The person you're trying to sue is in the wrong, um, but there's nobody to hear you. It's really messed up how the court system is all messed up. The same kind of mess you hear in modern times to get people on a certain side, to get people to vote for him. He's doing the same thing. Verse four, moreover, Absalom would say, oh, that I were made judge in the land and everyone who has any suit or cause would come to me, then I would give him justice. So you see what I mean when I'm saying he's going about politicking. His father is the king, David, the same David and Goliath David. So what he's doing now is the same thing we saw that happened on January 6th. He's forming an alliance of people who are willing to pull, up, pull off a coup and um, it'd be considered treason or sedition to try and overtake the current government so that he can be rise to power as the king. Um, but that's what he's doing. That's what he's up to. He's winning over the favor of the people by appealing to them in the causes 
that he knows are near and dear to them. Verse 5, and so it was, whenever anyone came near to bow down to him, that he would put out his hand and take him and kiss him. So people would go to him bowing down to him, knowing he's a prince of the land, he's King David's son. But rather than let them bow in reverence to, to him, it seems what he'd do is take them by the hand, basically shake their hand, and then also give them a kiss. So um, the kiss part might seem fishy, but um, we read previously how gorgeous Absalom is. He's like the hottest man in town, the hottest one around. And um, so even apparently male or female, men or women, if he reached out to kiss them, everyone was happy with that. Nobody had a problem with it. Verse 6, in this manner, Absalom acted toward all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. So he's using his charisma, uniqueness, nerve, and talent, as Rue would say, to win over the crowd and get them on his side, even though they were previously fully happy with King David, or at least satisfied enough that they weren't uh, rising up against him. But now his own son, Absalom, has won over the hearts of the people with a little charm. And it's similar to, just like I said, January 6th, the previous president, love him or hate him, he can be entertaining with the crazy ish that he says, even if it's often lies, uh, embellishments at best, uh, lies at worst, uh, but it's entertaining. So he got he has people who are on his side. And like I said, love him or hate him, you got to give him credit for that, for being entertaining enough to get people to, willing to go to prison for him. Uh, not just the people on January 6th who haven't been charged with terrorism charges, by the way, even though they were there clearly chanting that they were there to murder the vice president, who also, uh, like a castrated sheep, is um, not saying very much about the fact that they were willing trying to kill him and his former boss was the head of the crowd trying to get him killed. Pretty quiet about all of that. Not much of a man. But that lets you know everything that's male isn't a man. Everything that's female isn't a woman. It, people may not want to agree with it, but it's the fact. Some females are women. Some females are ladies. Some females are girls. Some females are actually males. I'm sorry, men. Um, but they're um, all females, but they just aren't the same type of female. The same way all males aren't men. Some males are men, are gentlemen. Some males are roughnecks. Some males are actually transgender women. Believe it or not, that's the way gender works. And it's the exact same thing that we see happening here. That um, with the treason going on, because that's what Absalom is up to, he's plotting against his own father to overthrow the government, much like January 6th. Um, verse 7. Now it came to pass after 40 years that Absalom said to the king, please let me go to Hebron and pay the vow which I made to the Lord. So Absalom's talking to King David and asking him basically for a leave so that he could go to Hebron um, and uh, pay a vow that he made when he was on the run, basically. And he was on the run, again, from his own father because he had raped, he killed his brother, one of the princes of the land. Um, and apparently he made a vow while he was gone. It's going to get into it further, so I won't go into that much further. It's going to kind of explain in the next verse or next few verses anyway. Um, so he's asking his father for leave to go pay a religious vow that he made. Let's see. Um, verse 8, For your servant took a vow while I dwelt at Geshur in Syria, saying, If the Lord indeed brings me back to Jerusalem, then I will serve the Lord. 
So that's the vow. That's the religious promise that he made to the Lord. And I'm just going to say Lord since um, that's how it's translated in English, even though Lord here is being translated from the entity, deity known as Jehovah. Um, and like I've said a bunch of times, that's not consistent. But that's what it's being translated from in this verse. So that's just the way I'm reading it now. Um, so he's asking to so that he can go fulfill that vow that he made. Verse 9. And usually a vow would, is generally an animal sacrifice of some sort that people make to fulfill their vows. Um, whereas in modern times, a vow can be a financial one um, that you might make to the church uh, uh, that you promise to give them money, basically. So to fulfill that vow would be paying money. Um, in his case, though, it's most likely an animal sacrifice. He's already got plenty of money, and um, his father is basically in league with the head of the church because just like in modern times, religion works along with politics to keep the people wrangled into a certain belief system, and that's what's going on back then. That's what goes on in modern times as well. Verse 10, then Absalom sent spices. Oh, I'm sorry, verse 9. And the king said to him, go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. So he got permission from his father, the king, to go ahead and go on leave and make the vow, fulfill the vow, which he promised to make. Verse 10, 10, then Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say Absalom reigns in Hebron. So he's already set everything into motion for him to seize power from his own father, um, probably because he realized that after he killed his own brother, uh, even though it seems like a, a, a justified killing, I mean, if you want to justify killing, um, uh, he sees that all he got was a slap on the wrist, just like January 6th. The people not being charged with treason, sedition, or even terrorism charges, even though that's exactly what was going on. Again, it wouldn't have been that case if the people were dark-skinned, but because the people who were there weren't dark-skinned, it seems they have that complexion for protection to not face the harshest possible consequences, even though that's exactly what they call for, for call for, for the vice president and for anyone else who tries to overthrow the government. Uh, but when it's them, they look another way. They look the other way and apparently have the government to look the other way also, because would it take two years to charge anyone else who had stormed the Capitol and was uh, threatening to kill the officials in office. No, it wouldn't have taken that long for anyone else. Um, so anyway, so Absalom is up to the same thing. He got a slap on the wrist, so now he's up to doing something even worse. And he's telling the people, just like you say, uh, you may have heard, long live the king. Uh, that's what they said before. Now they're, he's telling them when they hear the trumpet, that's the signal, and then they're to shout, Absalom reigns in Hebron, so basically declaring him the king when they when he gives them the signal. Verse 11, and with Absalom went 200 men invited from Jerusalem, and they went along innocently and did not know anything. So he had the hundreds that were with him when he started out, like we read at the beginning of his chapter, but he also has a couple hundred who were also along for the ride, but didn't weren't aware of his plan and his plot that he's bringing about. Um, so in modern times, that wouldn't be good enough. If, if people were robbing a bank and only one person pulled the trigger, the other people would also be charged 
with the attempted uh, robbery and if someone died in it, murder, uh, even if they weren't in the store or wherever it was that the robbery happened, they'd still be charged just the same. Yet you see again, that's not how January 6th went down. Um, no one, I don't think, was charged with murder charges at all. Uh, definitely weren't charged with any terrorism charges. Um, so similarly, um, there's Absalom, who's the head of the, what's going on, the planner, but he's got hundreds of people in league with him, some knowingly, some unknowingly, some uh, innocently, as it's saying, um, that have helped form the crowd that he's using to seize power. Verse 12, then Absalom sent for Hethophel the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city, from Gilo, while he offered sacrifices. And the conspiracy grew strong, for the people of Absalom continually increased in number. So that's what Absalom is doing. He's building up his forces by getting people to ally with him and even um, taking Ahithophel, the counselor, the king's counsel, onto his side also. Verse 13, now a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. So now word has finally gotten back to King David that um, his son has won over the heart of the people. He's become the popular politician among the common folks. And now word has gotten back to David. How do you think he's going to handle it? It's his own son. Let's see. Verse 14, so David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, arise and let us flee or we shall not escape from Absalom. Make haste to depart, lest he overtake suddenly and disaster and strike the city with the edge of the sword. So if you've read with me before, then you know I've read everything that's here, just didn't read it all out loud. The words that I left out go back to my Christian belief that Jesus tells us in Matthew 12, 37 about the things we say. Um, by, by your words, you'll be justified, and by your words, you'll be condemned. Like I've said again and again, I believe you have to be careful with the things you say, even if, and maybe even especially if they're things in the Bible. So feel free to read it out loud as you please, um, but realize if you read out this verse 14 as it's written, don't be surprised if disaster finds you, uh, if the edge of the sword finds you, and if being overtaken finds you. Because um, that's basically you know, the quote of what David is telling his people, that they should run for their lives so that none of those things happen to them. Um, now, contrast that with the same David who ran head, long, head first uh, against Goliath, the giant, the colossal uh, champion of the Philistines when he killed him. There was no fear or anxiety or fleeing there. And yet when it comes down to him, going head to head against his son, then he says flee and gets all of his people to flee with him. So it lets you see um, it's not an equal standard for everyone. There's bias. Verse 15, and the king's servant said to the king, we are your servants ready to do whatever my lord the king commands. So David has some faithful servants with him willing to even go on the land running away from the one person Absalom uh, when the whenever the king tells them to. And so that's what they're doing. Verse 16, then the king went out with all his household after him, but the king left 10 women, concubines, to keep the house. So like we've read before, the whole modern idea that Bible thumpers in America especially use that marriage is supposed to be one man and one woman, using that as ammunition against marriage equality for people who are of the same sex, or in recent times, and even uh, with the most recent legislation that passed, 
interracial marriages. Um, how cowardly is that? The people who voted against the interracial marriage uh, legislation from the Supreme Court justice to the Congress member are both in interracial marriages, one to an Asian woman and the other to a white woman. Uh, and yet they are against the legislation that supports their own marriages. It shows you it's either extreme cowardice or just extreme corruption or probably both, most likely both. But you see the same thing um, that bias is in the politics, which also affects the religion, which all affects the herding of the people, the common people who are subject to it, not the elites who are exempt from it, but the common people who are subject to the different regulations laid out by the elites. But uh, in this instance, excuse me, in this instance, we see that King David has more than one wife. So there goes the Bible thumper theory, one man, one woman marriage thing and basing it on the Bible. This is in the Bible and that's not the case. And we've read again and again that that hasn't been the case. Um, but so he's got wives, but he also has side pieces, a.k.a. concubines. They're not quite as elevated as a wife or a spouse would be, but they're also not as debased as a mistress would be. The concubines are in the open. Mistresses are generally in secret. Yet uh, the males in the Old Testament throughout the Bible are entitled to have all of that with no condemnation at all from above or from society. So once again, it's just a sign how norms change. Norms are not laws. I'm sorry, norms are not commandments. The commandments are just those 10 that Moses got when he went up on the mountain, that the ones that Jesus also affirmed when the, in the times of the New Testament. All those other things, those ordinances and statutes and things are creations of men, things that people cooked up. And it's the one thing Jesus warns us about, tells us to beware of, in one of the only three places of the whole Bible that we hear Jesus tell us what the will of God is. And in one of those places, it's to know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. So knowing the difference between a commandment from God and people speaking on their own authorities, laying out dogma for you to try to follow while they're exempt from it is important if you're going to call yourself a Christian and if you're going to try to be faith, faithful to what it is Christ would have us know and do and abide by as Christians. Um, otherwise, you end up um, being a hypocritical Bible thumper where you go around saying, oh, everything in the Bible is what you're supposed to be doing. Everything from Genesis to Revelation is the word of God. It is not. If it were, it wouldn't contradict itself. If it were, it would be consistent. If it were, it would not change. And yet we've seen again and again and again, it changes, whether it's the food laws, the marriage laws, the sex laws, all of those different things were laid out in one place and then changed to another. It changed in another, all within the Bible. And we're only in what, the ninth book of the Old Testament, or maybe 10th. Um, so just something to keep in mind. So he has the concubines also, and he's left them behind uh, to keep the house while he's on the run, presumably with his wives. Um, but he left the concubines, the side pieces there at the house. Verse 17, and the king went out with all the people after him and stopped at the outskirts. So King David is on the move with his people, with him, the people aligned with him. Um, and they've made it to the outskirts of the town. 
verse 18, and all his servants passed before him, and all the Sherathites, all the Pelethites, and all the Gittites, 600 men who had followed him from Gath, passed before the king. So um, the people who had followed him from Gath are the people who also had gone with him when he was on the run, because Gath is a Philistine territory. And that was when he was on the run in exile from his own people when Saul was hunting his life. He had several hundred people who followed him when he was on the run. Then they followed him back when he took uh, control of the kingdom after Saul was killed and he became king. Uh, so those same people, it seems, are still faithful to him and following him even now while he's on the run again. Verse 19, then the king said to Ete the Gittite, why are you also going with us? Return and remain with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your own place. So uh, David here seems to be sort of righteous in his treatment of Ite the Gittite, um, letting him know. And Gittites are an ancient civilization also that exists outside of the Bible. If you want to do further research on who they were, the Gittites, the Hittites, others, ites that are mentioned throughout the Old Testament. Amorites, Ammonites, all different people who also exist in history outside of the Bible. But um, get them, Ite in this instance is faithful to King David, and he's also exiled, it seems, or sought asylum from his own people, the Gittites, and has decided to align himself with David. And David is telling him, no, 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 you go on back. You're already exiled from your own people. Go on back and um, stay in Jerusalem. Verse 20, in fact, you came only yesterday. Should I make you wander up and down with us today? Since I go, I know not where. Return and take your brethren back. Mercy and truth be with you. So again, David seems kind of righteous in his dealing with Ite here, telling him, no, 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 you're already on the run. You've already done enough being exiled from your own people. Go on back to Jerusalem where you know it's safe and take your family, your people with you. Verse 21, but Ite answered, answered the king and said, as the Lord lives, and as my Lord the King lives, surely in whatever place my Lord the King shall be, even there also your servant shall will be. So again, you can refer to Matthew twelve thirty seven to um, refer to understand about the last part, last second to last clause in that verse, um, and why I read it but didn't read it out loud. Ite is basically saying life or death. He's going to be faithful to the King. Wherever the king goes, he's willing to go with him. So, very faithful. Verse 22. So David said to Ite, go and cross over. Then Ite the Gittite and all his men and all the little ones who were with him crossed over. So David has a faithful following and he seems to be doing right by them. Um, the foreigner, the Gittite, who's with him and offered him the chance to return rather than go on the run with him. But in faithfulness, the foreigner, Ite, the Gittite, decided he'd rather be with David. Um, live or die, he wants to be aligned with David. And David is telling him, okay, go on over, cross on over. Uh, verse 23. And all the country wept with a loud voice, and all the people crossed over. The king himself also crossed over the brook Kidron, and all the people crossed over toward the way of the wilderness. So um, they're crossing over a body of water to escape, it seems, um, from Jerusalem, where um, um, where the kingdom was set up, or is set up. Um, the king and his followers are leaving, crossing over that brook 
And that's the same Brooke Kid Draw I mentioned in the New Testament uh, at the time of in Jesus's ministry, just before the crucifixion, the Brooke Kid Draw is also mentioned there. Um, verse 24, there was Zadok also and all the Levites with him bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God. And they set down the Ark of God and Abiathar went up until all the people had finished crossing over from the city. So it's a huge crowd of people, at least the 600 that followed David when he was on the run before, and presumably many, many more since he became king, also following with him now as he's leaving the city, including the religious heads, Zadok and the Levites, also the um, religious uh, family, clan, tribe of the people, all seem to be aligned with David and are all on their way out leaving also. And they're also taking with them the covenant of God, the Ark of the Covenant, um, which is, like we've said before, it's the same Ark referenced in the movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's that same Ark, the religious relic that they're carrying along with them. And according to the Bible, the only things in it were not only, but the things in it exclusively were the Ten Commandments that Moses received when he went up on the mountain, the staff, the walking stick, as it were, or shepherd's staff, if you want to think of it that way, that Aaron, Moses' brother, had that um, uh, it blossomed ripe olive, uh, almonds, excuse me, and flowers on it, and also the um, the uh, a jar of the manna that the people were miraculously given as food when they traveled um, during their wilderness years after the emancipation from enslavement in Africa. Those are the only three things, according to what we've read, that were in that Ark of the Covenant. But it's used again and again with um, some supernatural connotations to it that it helps them in times of battles and things. But it also carried a plague with it wherever it went. And what seems or reads like or read like the bubonic plague or the black plague uh, uh, pandemic uh, would follow along with it poisoning the people, causing them to break out in boils and sores and die. Um, so um, all of that is associated with that same Ark of the Covenant that the people are, uh, the priests are carrying out, of, out with them as they cross over the brook to leave Jerusalem with David. Verse 25, when then the king said to Zadok, carry the Ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and show me both it and his dwelling place. So uh, David, the king, is telling the Zadok, the priest, presumably the high priest, the head priest, to take the Ark of the Covenant back um, rather than let it um, go along with him on the way as he's uh, escaping. And he's saying, um, if it be God's will, then the Lord will bring him back to see it again and also the place where it dwells, Jerusalem. Verse 26, but if he says thus, I have no delight in you, here I am, let him do to me as seems good to him. So what David is saying there in verse 25 is that if it be God's will, he'll make it back to the ark and his um, town again, Jerusalem again. But if not, God's will be done. He'll um, either way, let it be whatever God's will is to be. If he gets to see it again, he gets to see it again. The covenant, the ark of the covenant that is. And if not, so be it. Verse 27, the king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Return to the city in peace, and your two sons with you, Ahimaaz your son, and Jonathan the son of Abiathar. 
So um, he's referring to him as a seer. That's the same, uh, has the same meaning as a prophet, meaning a person who's in touch with or contact with the supernatural, the divine, who has a direct contact one way or another with God in plain English. Um, and so Zadaka is considered a priest there, and he's saying his sons also. So he's telling him and them to return and go back to the city in peace, uh, presumably so that they aren't also on the run facing uh, battles and war. Verse 28, but also for another purpose that we're going to see. Verse 28, see, I will wait in the plains of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So there it is, what his real purpose is or at least part of his real purpose is not just to make sure that the priest and his sons are safe, but also so that they can act as informants for him uh, to send him word on the development of different things that go on while he's on the run. Verse 29, therefore Zadok and Abiathar carried this ark of God back to Jerusalem and they remained there. So they've returned, Zadok the priest and his son Abiathar and um I suppose his other son also didn't he say Ahimaz also um, back to Jerusalem and took the Ark of the Covenant back with them. Verse 30, so David went up by the ascent of the Mount of Olives and wept as he went up and he had his head covered and went barefoot and all the people who were with him covered their heads and went up weeping as they went up. So whether it's monkey see monkey do of whatever the case may be, the people seem to mimic whatever it is they see the king doing. Uh, so he's weeping and crying as he heads up there. They're doing the same thing. Some of them probably sincerely because they probably have no, know the different things that have happened that led to him becoming king and the different things he's endured and that the nation has endured. Uh, but some of them almost certainly just copying whatever they see he do, he's doing to do likewise. Whatever the case, that's what's happening. He's leaving the city and crying as he goes. Verse 31, and probably also because it's his son who's the cause of him being run out of town this time. Verse 31, then someone told David, saying, Ethophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, I pray, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. So David is being informed here that the person who's king's counsel, Ahithophel, to him, has now um, allied himself with um, Absalom, the person who's bringing about the coup to have him flee the city. And he's praying there that um, the counsel that Ahithophel provides basically comes to nothing, that it ends up just being foolishness. Verse 32, now it happened when David had come to the top of the mountain where he worshiped God, there was Hushai the archite coming to meet him with his robe torn and dust on his head. So we've read previously about what the robe torn means. It's a way people would show in ancient times, at least in the Bible, that they were outraged at something or heartbroken over something. They'd rent their garments, they'd tear their clothes. And it's the same sort of clothes tearing that happens again at the crucifixion or just for at the trial of the crucifixion when Jesus is questioned by the high priests and asked, is he the son of God? But basically I'm paraphrasing. And he tells them, yes, and hereafter you'll see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And him declaring that, answering the question that they asked him, was enough to make the high priest tear his clothes. Not Jesus' clothes, but the high priest's own clothes. He tore them himself in an outrage moment. So um, that's what 
the point of Houshay there, the archite seems another foreigner who it has his clothes torn is showing. He's showing that he's outraged or heartbroken over the fact that apparently his friend, uh, or at least uh, someone he admires, David, is being exiled from his own throne. And the dust on his head is the same thing. It's something that people would do to show their humility, their heartbreak, their outrage. Um, verse 33, David said to him, if you go on with me, then you will become a burden to me. So um, once again, David seems pretty faithful to the foreigners, He's faith, which is, I mean, a good thing. It at least it seems fair. So he's telling um, Ar the archite, Hushai, that um, rather than go with him and be a burden to the cause, verse 34, but if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I was your father's servant previously. So I will now, so I will now also be your servant. Then you may defeat the council of Ahithophel for me. So it seems David is doing a couple of things there. He sent back the priest Zadok with Abiathar and Ahimaaz to go back and act as informants for him as the turn of events happened. Now he's sending back someone else who shaded Archite and telling him that something similar that rather than go with him and be a burden to the cause, he should return and act duplicitously toward Absalom and his administration and act again as sort of an informant and working against the uh, Absalom and his kingdom and his kingship, his administration. Um, and he's putting the onus on Ahithophel here as if it's not Absalom bringing all of this about. He's blaming Ahithophel, the king's counselor, who's now aligned with Absalom uh, for what's going on. So you see the bias stepping in again. He's not being all that fair. Uh, when it comes to, but I guess that's understandable. Parents often do that, I would imagine, where they overlook the deeds of their own kids, even if their kids are clearly wrong. But here, instead of blaming Absalom for the whole coup, he's putting it again on Ahithophel and saying that if the Hushai, the archite, uh, returns to Jerusalem and pretends to be um, uh, loyal to the new administration, then he can actually work again as an informant against Absalom and Ahithophel is who he's putting it on and what they're trying to bring about, the coup. Verse 35, and do you not have Zadok and Abiathar, the priest, with you there? Therefore it will be that whatever you hear from the king's house, you shall tell to Zadok and Abiathar, the priest. So he's, he's got them working on his behalf even though they're um, going back to Jerusalem rather than continue with them on the road in exile. He's got them being loyal to him, uh, returning back to uh, work for Absalom, or at least pretend to work on Absalom's side. Verse 36, indeed, they have there with them their two sons, Ahimaaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them, you shall send me everything you hear. So, it's not all altruistic, uh, selfless reasons that he's looking out for the foreigners. Uh, he's sending him back so that he can work for him still on his behalf as ears and eyes like the priests and help keep him informed on the different turns of events that his son Absalom and his former counsel Ahithophel are doing while he's on the run. Verse 37, so Hushai, David's friend, went into the city and Absalom came into Jerusalem. So just as David and the throng of people who are with him 
are leaving the city and exiting. Um, his son Absalom is making it to Jerusalem uh, with the people following him and loyal to him. As he goes in, pulls off a successful coup and overthrowing the government and seizing power from the king, his own father, in Jerusalem. So that was the last verse in this chapter. So that's where we'll end this reading. As always, thank you for joining me for The Naked Truth. I hope it's a blessing for you and that you'll join me again. And uh, Christmas is right at hand. It's right around the corner. I love you. See you next time. Merry Christmas and God bless you. Peace be with you.